You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto Podcast, where you'll learn advanced strategies, tactics, and tips for actually selling your music. If you'd like to learn more music marketing strategies, then go to musicmarketingmanifesto.com. That's musicmarketingmanifesto.com. And sign up for your free copy of the Music Marketing Blueprint. Now, here's your host, John Ojaka. All right, John Ojaka here, and thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. In this episode, I've got something that I certainly think is is rather special for you guys. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to connect with Derek Sivers. Derek is the founder of CD Baby. He's also a musician and entrepreneur, and has done uh, some some really amazing things in his life, which we're going to be discussing more in this episode. And uh, he is residing currently in New. Zealand. He's down at the top of the South Island. I'm currently uh, living at the top of the North Island. And I was down in his area for a wedding and we had some friends in common. So I reached out and he was nice enough to invite me over to his home. Uh, had a great conversation, which was followed by the interview that you're about to hear. Now, um, Derek is someone that I've admired for a very long time. He's done some really interesting things in the music industry and in business. Uh, and he's just an all-around classy dude. I, I really um, enjoyed having the uh, opportunity to meet him and, and talk about the music industry with him. And, uh, you know, he's just got some really uh, inspiring attitudes about art and about business and, again, about the music industry. And, and we're, I'm going to share uh, some of those ideas with you guys in this interview. And I'm going to say this at the end of the interview as well, but I, wa- I wanted to say it here before we dive in so that, uh, you know, you not only hear it, but so that you have it... Um, you have it in your mind as you, you, you listen to this interview. Derek is really the guy who ushered in the modern music industry. He really changed uh, the music industry, I think, for the better. Because prior to CD Baby, uh, traditional distributors really had a stranglehold on, on the music industry. As an artist, if you were not one of this very small minority of musicians to land a, a traditional distributor, usually that meant a record deal, though not always, uh, you, were, you were pretty screwed. The only way you could really go out and actually sell music was through live shows for the most part and that all changed when uh, Derek essentially started selling his own music on the internet uh, started helping friends sell their music on the internet and as he says a, a sort of accidental company was born from there which was CD Baby and CD Baby started helping uh, other artists sell their music online and that gave independent musicians access to an international audience, and that didn't exist for the majority of musicians until CD Baby was born, and now obviously there are many solutions out there, and ever since then, the music industry has been evolving. That pie, that revenue pie that was the old music industry has been divided into many more pieces, and many more independent artists are finding ways to generate income and have actual careers than they once did in the past, and I, I think it's it's been very exciting. Again, we're still right in the middle of this sort of de-evolution. 
of the traditional music industry, and I, for one, think it's a great thing. You know, the more we can uh, shake up the status quo and um, give life to new uh, methods, new business practices, new strategies, uh, new ideas, and new art, the better. And uh, so, again, Derek Sivers is really the guy uh, who started all of that. And so, you know, all of us listening to this, if it's not too corny, uh, you know, owe him a debt of gratitude. Like, he, he, he really did something amazing. And uh, it didn't really stop there, but we'll talk about that in the interview. So what you're about to hear is is a recent interview that I I recorded with Derek, uh, and we just chat about the music industry. We talk about some of his experiences in the music industry with starting CD Baby and about some of the patterns that he saw among successful musicians that have crossed his path over the years. So it's a fairly meaty interview. We uh, we chat for just over an hour, so I, I don't want to waste too much time here with this intro. Just kind of wanted to let you know what you're going to be listening to. Again, a big thanks to Derek for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, and without further ado, I think we should just jump right in here and get started. So uh, on the line with me is Derek Sivers. Derek, how are you doing? Hey, John. Good. Thanks. Awesome. Well, uh, I really, really sincerely appreciate you doing this with me. Um, you know, I, as uh, I mentioned a moment ago, I had the the pleasure of meeting up with you down in New Zealand. We're both Americans living uh, currently in New Zealand. And when I found out yeah. you were down in in Nelson, which I recently visited for a wedding, I reached out, and again, you were kind enough to have me over, and uh, we chatted for a couple hours about music and the music industry and our experiences in it and all that over some tea, and so I thought, you know, it would be really awesome to share your, your story uh, with my listeners, because I know a good a good number of them are admirers of yours as well. I, I see your name quite a lot in the how'd you hear about me category, and um you know, you're someone that I've admired for a long time. You, you've done some things that I really want to do uh, myself in my own life. Uh, and um, especially after recently reading your book, which I'm really glad I read after we met, because I had that not come about as quick as it did, I would have normally read it and go, gone in. But I got to hear all these stories in a, in a just very conversational way with no preconceived notions and then read the book. And it kind of made me go, oh, my God. God, I, I, that, that's like you were, you were being quite, quite humble and, and leaving some impressive details out, which we'll, we'll talk about more. But, um, but I, I, like I said, I think you've done some really amazing things. Um, you know, for anyone listening, uh, obviously you started uh, CD Baby. You, you were a musician yourself, and uh, you know a thing or two about the independent music industry. So I, I thought we'd chat a little and just kind of share your your story and perspective. Um, so why don't you just kind of start off talking about how you transitioned from, you know, being a musician to the owner of CD Baby, the world's largest independent distributor uh, or the world's largest distributor of independent music. How did that happen? So you're a musician living in, was it, were you in Oregon? Were you in Los Angeles at the time? Where does the story start? New York City, actually. Oh, New York. In New York City. Because I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston. And so as soon as I graduated from Berklee, the thing to do, of course, was to move down to New York City so, um, yeah, I was making my full-time living as a musician in New York City, uh, doing whatever it took to make a buck as a full-time musician. So, in fact, last time I had a day job was 1992. That's when I quit <laughs> my last day job and a full-time musician ever since. That was a very proud moment. 
And um, so, yeah, I was doing whatever it took to make a buck, right? Like I would be producing people's demos or I was a session guitarist on people's albums, uh, had a little home recording studio and I'd record people at my place. I actually went on tour. I was the guitarist for a Japanese pop star named Ryuichi Sakamoto and uh, toured the world or sorry, toured Japan and Europe with him a couple times. Nice. Um, so yeah, just kind of living the life, like doing whatever it took uh, to make a living as a musician. And, and I did it. I was, I bought my house in Woodstock with the money I made touring. Um, and I was kind of living the musician's dream come true. Right. So, sure. so you asked like how I transitioned from being a musician to the owner of CD baby. Honestly, man, I, I was just, kicking and screaming and resisting the whole way. I did not want to start a business, <laughs> which is, is really funny to me when I meet these people now that are asking my advice on like, hey, I want to start a business. How can I start a business? And I feel like I'm not the right person to ask because I never wanted to start a business. You know, I wanted to be a musician, but I started this little hobby, this little tiny website called CD Baby that was really just like, 10 of my friends records it was really just like a little itty bitty thing set up to help some of my friends in new york sell their music online and then just word got out because at the time there was just no competition nobody else was doing anything like it it's almost hard to imagine now but like imagine this right it's 1997 uh, late 97 early 98 there is no paypal uh, amazon.com is just an online bookstore there's I don't think even MP3s hadn't really been invented yet. Like I think maybe somewhere there the codec had been invented, but people weren't using them yet. So the only way to sell your CD online, because you weren't really selling MP3s yet, right? So people would make a CD and you could either sell it off the stage at your gigs, or you could make one of those old-fashioned websites that would say please send a check or money order for $15 to this address in St. Louis and please right. allow six to eight weeks and we'll mail you one. <laughs> right. Or there was a guy named Derek in New York that could do it for you. <laughs> like that, right. Those were your options. So word got around really fast. Like, Hey, there's this guy, Derek, that will sell your CD. He set up a little thing called CD baby. And that's what all the musicians are using. So, um, yeah, it just took off really fast. And, uh, I really didn't want it to grow because I was living the musician's dream, right? So I didn't want anything to get in between me and my music. I didn't want something to distract me. I was I was making records. I was producing people's records. I was gigging. I didn't want this thing to pull me away from that. Um, but uh, even then, like, I, I realized a little while into it, like, wow, I think I accidentally started a business, right? Um, but even then I did nothing to promote it. Like I didn't want it to grow too big and distract me, but it grew anyway. And within a few years, it was the largest seller of independent music online with 150,000 artists and I think 2.5 million customers. Wow. And uh, I had 85 employees. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was going to ask you, you just uh, brushed past me there. How long did it take to go from just literally doing it for a couple of friends to having this giant, thing that you ultimately created well that was actually pretty it was relatively slow relative to people's expectations now okay so actually that's a, that's a good question nobody's ever asked me this before um 
at the time, it felt fast to me because I didn't want this little hobby website to grow, right? But but in hindsight, I have to just kind of laugh when these like tech startup entrepreneurs come to me and they say, Hey, I started my business six months ago and I'm not a billionaire yet. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> I'm like, Oh, come on. Like, so now just imagine this, like a year after I started CD baby, it was still just me doing it in my living room with no employees, getting maybe a few orders a day and maybe adding 10 new albums a week coming in the door, right. That I would set up by hand every weekend. Sure. And then, after first year, that's when I hired my first employee. And after second year, it's when I hired my second and third employee. And then after about like two and a half years is when I moved it into a big warehouse, hired my fourth person. And then it really started to take off more like after the, it started to ramp up faster after two or three years. Mm-hmm. And I'd say about the four year point is where it really felt like crazy momentum right. it was after about four years. So yeah, if if anybody out there is listening and thinking of starting your business, it it takes a while. You can't just think it by reading the tech press. You know, you read about uh, some company that it sounds like they just started a few months ago and they're already, you know, bigger than Pinterest or something. Sure. Uh, but those are the such a rare one in a million outlier cases that for most people, most jobs, most businesses you start, it's going to take years to slowly build a reputation, build a client base, you know, build recommendations. Sure. And I think that applies to music as well. I mean, you know, I'll get those kinds of sort of similar questions a lot, just doing what I do, teaching folks direct to fan marketing and people will kind of buy this $150 course and set up a website and spend $20 on advertising and sometimes be confused as to why they're not, you know, rich and famous uh, just yet. But um, (laughs) I I, I think a properly structured, especially with uh, online marketing, a properly structured music career, if you're embracing the online marketing techniques at least that I teach um, and as 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 well as others but um, I, I think you're building a business the principles are fundamentally the same um, as building a business yeah. and it takes time you got to build that base and and um, yeah it, it does definitely take time um, well you know what actually if you don't mind me interrupting yeah, you, yeah. like the I love the fact that the Beatles threw out their first hundred songs that wow. somewhere in an interview once that came out that like they had written over a hundred songs and performed them live all the time before they got their first record deal. And when they f- got their first record deal, they they didn't use those first hundred songs. They used like the, the twelve newest ones they had written, and those first hundred songs just were forever abandoned. And you know, you meet people in music, you meet musicians that are like, they take their first five songs they've ever written, and they really want to like work the hell out of those and put those out there and make everybody in the world listen to their first five songs. And I just feel like just write a hundred songs and then let's talk about promoting your music. Like it just, there's a, there's a development, even just a musical development that happens slowly over your life. And it, it's almost a shame that everything is so online now and people are trying so hard to get people to uh, give value to their first five songs they've ever written. You know, like sure. it's, it's kind of a quantity thing. You got to write a hell of a lot. You you slowly improve over time. You can't just think that as soon as you start doing something, the the world owes your uh, owes their attention to you. 
Sure, sure. Um, good point. And and I'm kind of I'm staring at some questions that I've got in advance, and 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 then after putting them together, I ended up reading your book, and now I have got so many things that I kind of want to ask about that. So I'm going to kind of ask you these questions that apply specifically to the music industry, and then we're going to kind of circle back, if that's all right, and talk a little bit about some, some of your, your earlier days and some of the um, interesting tales that are, that are in the book. Um, but uh, one sort of third aside there, a question about what you were saying, how you were a musician, a working musician, doing well by the sound of it, and you didn't really want to start a business. Presumably, you wanted to just keeping, or keep making music. Did the business ultimately um, destroy the music career because I get that question a lot from musicians interested in internet marketing and starting an internet business. They're concerned that you know they're going to get totally sidetracked with the online business and forget about their music. And you know while I'm still making music, it's definitely been hard to main find the time and maintain the focus on on some of the the music because of um, all these businesses that I've got going. So what happened in your case? Yeah. Are you still making music? No, totally took over, um, yeah, against my wishes, but <laughs> I got to admit that something clicked, and it's about the time that I started CD Baby, I had already been a full-time musician, like professional musician, for about 12 years. I'd been, uh, I was touring with a circus, all those other things I said, too, but like a lot of touring, a lot of gigging. And it was just at that point, actually, where I was starting to get pretty weary of it, right? So when it became clear that CD Baby was taking off, I kind of, I kind of resigned myself into it. Um, I was actually really, really interested in it. I just found that all of a sudden the, I was learning so much. It was like this whole new world opened to me. Uh, I was having to learn programming and business and all this stuff that... It was like something switched in my head. And I think about what it must take to go from being like a basketball player to being a basketball coach, right? Right, right. That, that the coach is not wishing that he was out there on the court under the spotlight. He's just kind of saying, no, my role now is to help you guys be the best you can be. And that's what I'm the best at now is helping you be the best. So shortly after I started CD Baby, I felt like my role in the world switched. Like I had had 12 good years as a professional musician. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't the major rock star that you were, John, but, um, <laughs> but I, I, made a, I made a good living. You know, it's like I bought my house with the money I made making music. Like to me, that was oh, yeah. my definition of success. Definitely. And so now I wanted to help other musicians have their day in the spotlight too you know what i mean and that ended up becoming more interesting to me than just writing another song sure. so there was a time about a year after i started cd baby where i'm like okay this is ridiculous i haven't made any music in a year like i'm gonna set up my recording studio again i had moved from new york out to portland oregon um after the business was about two years old and i remember when i moved it out to portland I took this room and I set up my studio again. And I remember it took me like, I don't know, six hours to get all the mixing board and the cables and the rack of equipment and all that stuff set up and get the MIDI cables and all that stuff. And I remember I got everything all up and working with um, Logic and played a couple notes on the synth, made a couple noises with the guitar into the mixing board and verified that everything worked. I was like, all right, it's all set up. I was like, hmm. 
I got to get back to work. <laughs> and then I went back to some CD baby work. And then honestly, man, I never really went back to it because, yeah, you're right. It just, the business can really take over your life because you know what? It's about urgency that once you have a business, that stuff becomes urgent. Like you have urgent customers and clients or vendors or whatever that have urgent problems for you all the time. You have emails filling your inbox full of questions and problems and that stuff is so urgent and whereas like writing a song or you know taking four to 12 hours to learn a new thing on your guitar or whatever right that stuff's never urgent so that's why yeah i think it'll almost always get taken over by your business yeah i know i know what you mean i've been sitting on a finished album for about two years now um just purely because there's always something pressing and i'm gonna need to clear like three months to really focus on it and so every month comes along i go well i'll I'll work on this stuff, get it out of the way. And then next month I'll start setting up the album. And then next month I've got something. Else to and so, you know, six years from now it'll, it'll, it'll come out. But, um, but anyway, uh, but you said something in the book that I really liked and I hadn't heard anyone else um, sort of express this before. And it's something I certainly feel have tried to express to others, which is, um, and I'm paraphrasing here so you can correct me if I'm getting it slightly wrong, but it was that basically, you know, the, business to some extent was like art you know whether it was designing software or coding something out it was the same creative process um as as writing songs and creating art and i certainly feel that way with with what i i'm doing and i say this and i bring it up because i'm always trying to convince artists that they need to embrace the marketing or the business side of things if they ultimately want to reach people and there's this there's this resistance you know there's a certain percentage of musicians who are really responsive to that get it and want to consume all the information they can but there's a probably greater majority who just business is evil you know marketing is evil and i see it as all part of reaching people and i I see that as the fundamental job of all art you know whether you're painting a picture writing a song or putting a email series together and scheduling it on an autoresponder it's this creative process where you have to there's this imagined link between your own heart and and the world uh, at large your your prospect or your fan or or that person listening to your music or viewing your oil painting whatever it is that you do there's this imagined connection um throughout both experiences, you know, whether it's setting up a marketing campaign or writing a song, and, and you expressed it um, well in your book, and I just thought thought that that was cool. And again, to br- bring it up because I, I think a lot of musicians need to hear that that it doesn't have to be this big evil thing that's disconnected from the art. Yeah, well, check it out. I, there's this kind of saying that really helps me remember this stuff is that art doesn't end at the edge of the canvas. Right. Like think of last time you went to a museum. So there's some paint on a canvas. Yes. But then there's also the little sign underneath it saying something about it. Right. So somebody might splatter some paint on a canvas and you look at it and you go, hmm. And then you walk up and you look at the little sign underneath it and it says uh, JFK 1963 or whatever, like right. the day he was killed. Right. Right. And you go, oh, that's oh, the splatter. Mm, very interesting. And then even the fact that it's hung in the Guggenheim Museum in New York City is kind of an extension of the art. Like now that has a meaning because it's Guggenheim in New York City, whereas if it was hanging at the local coffee shop, it would have a different meaning, right? Sure. So this is all 
part of the art, right? Like it's, so I, I feel the same thing about music that think of, think of the different layers that music has, right? So first you've got your very basic, like the words, the melody, the chords, right? And then you, you layer on top of that what you choose your instrumentation to be, whether it's going to be a, a, a harp and a viola or whether it's going to be a, a stack of marshals and a Les Paul or if it's going to be some uh, twisted virus synthesizer, you know. Um, those are further extensions of your art that you're, you're choosing the instrumentation. Then there's even the production level. Like, are you going to make the production uh, crystal clear or are you going to make it all like twisted, filtered, and, and uh, sick, or are you going to uh, make it beautiful and acoustic or whatever? And then you go on stage, or then even, let's say, like your choice of what you call the band, your your presentation. This is all like an extension of the art, of like th that initial kind of, your initial choices of putting words and music together. Um, all the rest of this is just a further extension of your art. And I think that your marketing and how you communicate with the world it's just again, it's like another layer on your art, on your production choices, your your uh, photo choices, your band name choices. It's it's just more of that art. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I think it's just you can be as creative as you want to be. In fact, I think it's a shame when musicians are totally creative through most of those stages, and then they get to the marketing and it's not because they think, oh well, um, this is business now. I have to do it the right way. So. What are the what are the correct seven steps for me to follow when marketing? You know, right. <laughs> what is the correct way to market my music? I need to do this correctly. It's like, oh come on, were you asking that when you were deciding on your guitar parts? Were you looking for the correct chords or the correct words? No, it's like you get to just this can be whatever you want it to be. You get to just flourish. Then it's it's art, man. <laughs> totally, and I think you know, and I'm just sort of thinking this. Uh out loud right now so hopefully i can articulate it um but you know one of the things they often say is you need to learn music theory so you can break all the rules and then truly be you know creative and i think the same is true of marketing or business or however well i guess we're really talking about marketing here specifically but you need to understand it in order to actually be creative and i think that's where so many people miss is they don't understand it they've never really looked into it they don't really embrace learning these principles um because they see themselves as divorced from the marketing and the business and therefore well, all they can do is copy and what do we copy we copy all the right. horrible marketing that we've seen all our lives you know from car salesmen and you know cheesy i don't know mattress salesmen on the tv you know exclamation points everywhere and buy my cd seems to yeah. be the big the big marketing message that you know 90% of artists are sending out to their list but if if i think people embraced a little bit of the the theory behind it and really looked into the topic and learned some of these principles they could then um become creative and 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 really start bending those rules and do some interesting things but um not not to spend too much time on that and like i said we're going to circle back in a bit and talk about some of these these earlier adventures you had along the way but i wanted to get into some some more practical advice for folks from someone who has certainly sold his share of, of cds um you know one of the things that i found is that i can tell pretty quickly whether or not someone's going to succeed with the strategies that at least i teach um 
You know, mm-hmm. you just you hear certain things coming out of their mouth, the the type of questions they're asking. Uh, you know, I'll have I have a uh, a small support team, namely um, Steve Rogers, who works with me, and many of the folks listening have probably spoken with him via email. And you know, he and I will chat, and we'll see a, a question or comment, and we'll just sort of some sometimes we're like he'll he'll forward me something specifically because he's like, oh, this guy's gonna do really well. Check out check out what he what he's saying. You, you just tell there's just wisdom in the questions, and then other people mm-hmm. are focused on the wrong details, and you just kind of you know shake your head and get concerned because you can tell that someone's not going to um, flourish with their current sort of mindset or, or at least how they're approaching the the topic at hand. So you know what. What did you notice when dealing with musicians over the years? You know, were there any defining patterns that you saw or, you know, anything in common with those who sold well? Was there, was there any kind of conscious or unconscious rule that you had in your mind where you're like, oh, this person's doing it right? Absolutely. Um, it was so fascinating to watch so many musicians' careers fly or fall or stall. <laughs> I got to learn so much about what works and what doesn't. It was it was wild, right? Like after being a musician my whole life, like being in the musician's frame of mind, to now being that kind of metaphorical guy on the other side of the counter at the record store, right? Just watching what works and what doesn't. So I ended up, I wrote up all of my findings into a, a little free ebook that's on my site. Uh, it's called Marketing Your Music. And if you go to the my Sivers.org website, it's just like a PDF that you can grab just because honestly, man, I have like, <laughs> I could talk for 90 minutes just about this subject, right. like what works and what doesn't. Uh, so uh, if you want like the, the full story, it's just a free little PDF uh, I call Marketing Your Music on my site. But so let's think of some examples. Um, I think the first most important thing is the song crafting, right? Like we can talk about everything else, but nothing matters as much as an incredibly well-crafted song. I think when I read the, uh, the biography of the band U2, I think the author's name was Bill Flanagan, did a book probably almost 10 years ago about U2 and Biography, and there's one killer quote from early, I think, when U2 was just first booming in the U.S. market. I think their their big first hit song was New Year's Day or something like that back in the 80s. Um, Bill Flanagan, the author of the book, was a friend of the band that was driving them around Boston doing radio interviews and stuff like that. And their song was all over the radio. And he was telling the band about a friend of his that was like in the best band in Boston. And these guys had been like the top sellers at all the clubs for 10 years and just slogging it through and could never like get a break or whatever. And the edge from you two said something like, it's amazing that one great song can do more for a band than 10 years of gigging. (laughs) And that just really hit me. Right. Like, I think a lot of people out a song or they have this this attitude towards songwriting that, hey, man, the music just flows through me, man. And whatever like comes out is the way it is, you know. (laughs) But if you understand like song crafting where it's like, you know, in the same way that you're teaching people about crafting their their communication and their interaction, like let's not forget the importance that you can craft your songs to be better than they were when they first came to you. Right. Like there's this initial kind of 
impulse like, hmm, that's kind of a cool melody or hmm, that's an interesting phrase. And then you can craft it. You can work it to, to be more memorable or more unique. Um, uh, something that, that commands it for anybody who listens to it, like working hard to find the surprising lyrical way of saying something, not just the, the first way that came. The thing that comes to our mind is more cliche and you have to kind of work harder to think of a more surprising way to say the same thing, or even the production value, for example, um, you, your first impulse is just go for the typical instrumentation, the typical sound that you're used to doing, because that's what comes to you first. But if you push beyond that, then you can get to a production value of, of um, taking some production choices that are that jump out of the speakers. It's the, the unusual thing to do that commands attention. Um, you can learn about the, the crafting of, of melody in a way. There are certain melodic structures that tap into that mysterious psyche that makes us remember certain melodies more than others. Um, so I really think that a great presentation of a great song overrides everything else that you and I could ever talk about, right? You and I could talk for hours and hours and hours about marketing and somebody trying, to, somebody doing great marketing of so-so music is not going to get as far as somebody with an amazing song and so-so marketing. Sure, sure. I really believe that. So um, so first, like, before we talk about anything else, you know, you always have to acknowledge, that, like, don't get so lost in the marketing that, that you forget the importance of where this starts. In fact, you know what I think was really cool? I don't know if anybody listening here, if you ever read Seth Godin's book called The Purple Cow, he made something that I think was kind of a groundbreaking point is he said that in, in the age of like the 1950s or sixties, you could release a new detergent or soap or something or cough syrup, and you could put it on the shelves in the supermarkets of the world. And you'd only be competing against a few others. So then you could go buy a bunch of TV advertising and tell people your brand. And it worked like for a few decades, you could just put out something of good quality and do a lot of advertising and it would work. Seeing, but that doesn't work anymore. Like times have changed and you now, instead of putting out a pretty good product and doing lots of advertising and marketing around it, your product itself has to be so remarkable that friends tell friends about it, that people's jaws drop and they say, oh my God, <laughs> they say, You've got to see this. Now friends are telling each other about it because the like the product itself is groundbreaking. So his point was, don't put effort into your marketing until you've put so much effort into your product that the feedback you're getting tells you that it's groundbreaking, shocking, breathtaking, and remarkable. And then you can go kind of roll it out to the rest of the world. But until then keep your focus on the product itself, which in our case is the music. Sure. So again, I think there's really something in that, like that's working on your music and making it shockingly unique and breathtaking and, and attention grabbing is more important or as important than everything else we could talk about. Right. So, Just to not, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah, yeah. And it's great. And I, and I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I, um, don't want to sidetrack too much because I want to get to any more tips or advice you have on, on that front. But I was curious of your perspective 
Um, you know, one, I definitely agree that, you know, if you're marketing poor quality stuff, you're going to have a really tough time. But what I've really come to feel, especially for musicians in this new internet era or whatever you want to call it, uh, I think a lot, I think new things fall under that umbrella of what the product is, namely one's personality or brand or however you want to define it. There are, you know, certainly good professional music that stands on its own as part of the equation, but then you have this this next tier of good artists that are all making great artists and some jump out and others don't. And it's not always just because of the marketing. I think that it's the quality of communication, you know, and, and there are people like who I'm constantly talking about her because I think she does such a great job, like Amanda Palmer, who's so engaging, you know, with her blog posts and her tweets and all these things that it doesn't, I, I bought, ultimately bought her music after following her blog, you know, the, right. the, and I think there's, I think that's an important part of the equation or a part, an important part of the definition of what that product even is uh, in this day and yep. age is being, creating a brand that's bigger than just the songs. The songs need to be there and the music needs to be there. But I think this personality and this ability to communicate a lifestyle or a passion that people can, to some extent, live vicariously through is also part of it. I mean, do you do you agree or do you yeah. think it's more about just the, 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 the actual recordings? It's to me that that falls under the kind of art doesn't end at the edge of the right. canvas idea. Right, right. Right. It's all part of what you're really presenting. In fact, when I get somewhat anonymous emails from someone asking me a, a big, broad question like, hey, how can I get successful in music? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. well, who are you? I mean, right. are you? Are you 18 years old and ready to commit to being a media star and a model and all? Because let's not confuse you know, being Taylor Swift with being a musician. Sure. Like that's, that's a very different career to be a kind of media star as to being just a musician. It's, it's two very different things. And maybe you're a great musician that just enjoys being in the studio and you will follow a different career path than if you really enjoy being the, the center of attention, you know, et cetera. But yeah, it's all part of your total package. I mean, I think a lot of musicians I know wouldn't want to be Amanda Palmer. Right, sure. But that level of being that public, that connected, that communicative does not appeal to a lot of people. They'd rather be behind the scenes being a, what's his name, a Max Martin being behind the scenes writing hit songs for other people, spending his time making music. You know, I was, sure. I was always jealous of the, the record producers seem to have a, a great career. You know, when I read the uh, autobiography of Brian Eno and it, through the year that he was writing that autobiography, um, he was working with U2 on the band, on the album called Achung Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- so what I love is that he's in there every day in the studio, like swirling in creativity, right? Like, just living this like fully creative life and they're making these artistic decisions by the minute every day in the studio. And then when he's done with the record, you two had to go on tour and go now play those same 15 songs every night. Whereas like the next day he was onto the studio to produce the next, produce the next album. Right. Sure. And so to me, that's like, I'd rather have his life. I'd rather have like the creative life 
instead of the the life in the spotlight just kind of playing and singing those same 20 songs every night years on end i'd rather have a life full of creativity although it means less spotlight less attention but you know let's not be confused there are different different paths we can go in the music industry and um you're right though that all these levels of communication and the the amanda palmer role model that that's um it's all part of who you are and what kind of role you want in music you know Sure, but I, and sorry, I, I, I realize. Sorry, we took this. <laughs> no, no, and, but I think you bring up a really good point. And, and I, in fact, I was talking with an artist yesterday and used Amanda Palmer as an example. And she was saying, "Yeah, I, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to reach out to people. I don't want to go play people's houses, and I don't want to, you know, take that approach." Um, which is totally fair. And I think that there's a huge gamut there. I mean, you can be an Amanda Palmer, or you can be a JD Salinger of music. You know, who yeah. whatever your brand is, it just needs to be um, something that people can connect with for some reason and in some way, you know, whether that's total mystery, but yeah. somehow you've still brought that to the forefront of your brand, or it's total connect uh, connection with others and constant communication as someone like Amanda Palmer's done. But it, I, I think, but I think that that thing that you know, to use a marketing term, that ultimate selling proposition sort of to, to mm-hmm. me anyway, has to be there beyond just great song. Uh, if you have a great song that might be enough. Um, but then you, if you don't have that other thing, I think you have a one hit wonder on your hands. But if you have great marketing and no great songs, you have, um, you really not much at all on your hands. Right. Yeah. So even though I started, you know, I feel this is a, a long-winded answer to your question about um, the the defining patterns I noticed of the sure. artists that got successful on CD Baby. I felt like I kind of had to start by saying, like, without focusing on making your music as as shocking and appealing as could be, or attention getting. I don't mean to say shocking like uh, like that, but as attention getting and appealing as it can be, then the rest of it is moot. But yeah, that's making great music in itself is not enough. Right, right. Um, so the other thing I noticed, um, the most successful artists on CD Baby were doing was keeping in touch. And I think this is one of the most important things mm. you could do for your career is learn to keep in touch uh, with the people that matter in your career because people aren't perfect. Uh, they don't have perfect memories. Life distracts us and we forget what and even who we know. So if you learn to make a system of keeping in touch with your A, B, and C list of people that are the most important to your career, then you can stay at the forefront of the minds of the people who can help you. So it would happen to me often that, say, uh, some musician would call me to say hi, and then later that day someone is calling me from, say, a TV production studio asking for recommendations for some good music. So guess who I think of first? Right. <laughs> I, I think of... Uh, not that great artist that I loved last year but haven't heard from in a long time. I think of the good artist that contacted me a few hours ago because now they're at the forefront of my mind. Right. You no, know, it's it's maybe not fair that life works that way, but it does. And I'd find it work for me that way too, where almost every time I'd go have lunch with some power player in the music industry, well, then later that day they would often send somebody my way that they were talking to uh, because they had me on their mind because we just had lunch and I got some amazing connections that way. Sure. So um, that's that's one of the other most important ones is like 
keeping in touch and don't forget to work the industry itself too that um if you're just doing nothing but like between you and your fans um you might just very very slowly climb from where you are but there are still people or avenues in this industry that can expose you to millions instantly and let's not forget about them so um i think it does help to keep working the inside of the industry too Sure, sure. And what, did you do you have any thoughts on where the fine line is with keeping in touch too much? Because suddenly we've got you know twenty thousand musicians going to every contact in their book and and calling once a week. Um, what do you have any thoughts on that that perfect balance of being out there and networking but not um, being a stalker? Well, the the person that gave me this advice was actually a publicist. Uh, to the stars in LA. <laughs> he was like Tom Cruise's publicist and, and other stuff like that. And he said um, he divides people into his A list, B list, and C list. And so his advice was the people in the A list, the people that are most important to your career, find a way to get in touch with them every 10 days or so, just with preferably with something that is serving them, not you. Mm-hmm. Whether it's um, you introducing somebody to them or you finding something that can help them um ideally you you listen in conversations for what they're looking for and think of ways that you can help them and find the way to do this every 10 days or so um it's at the b list are people you want to be in touch with say every month or two um these are people that are also important to your career not quite the a list but every month or two find a way to be in touch with them and he said the c list i just make sure to contact them once a year to make sure that I still have their contact info current and they still have mine so that if we ever need to move up to the, if they ever become B or A list, that at least I know how to reach them if I need to. Right. Right. Good advice. Well, um, that's, that's actually, yeah, that's given me a lot of thoughts on my own. Um, anything else that you noticed in terms of, again, those successful patterns, maybe anything about how they, um, marketed their stuff or promoted their music was there any anything in common or uh, was it quite varied it was it was quite varied again um yeah i mean it's a free little ebook so please don't think that i'm like yeah yeah pitching this like a sales pitch but i i did kind of back in the day when i was still kind of right there in it i really took you know a few months and i wrote up this this free ebook called marketing your music so check that out for more details um but lastly, I think that it kept surprising me how much the music itself would carry so much of the career. Like the, this blows my mind and it goes against a lot of what you and even I talk about to other musicians. But one of the best sellers of all time on CD Baby was this album called Prozac for Lovers that this very shy, reclusive uh, mastering engineer in Chicago made a record in his spare time at work as a mastering engineer called Prozac for Lovers uh, that was mellow bossa nova cover versions of classic rock songs. You know, so like a sitting on a park bench i little girls with padded dress and like the xylophone comes in so 
this record, like he sent me five copies of the CD, like everyone else did. He set it up. Those sold immediately. Um, and I think he didn't even tell anybody it was there. I think like he might've put out one little press release, like who cares? And, um, so John, that record just kept selling and selling and selling and, it sold thousands and, and almost everybody heard of it by word of mouth. Somebody would be playing it at a party and then somebody would look over their shoulder to go, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, Oh my God, this is brilliant. Is that what I think it is? Is that like, Oh my God, that's a cover version of, of the clash, but like mellow bossa Nova and word of mouth sold thousands of the CD. And the guy like never lifted his head out of his Chicago mastering studio. Like he, Never did any interviews, no promotion, no nothing. We didn't speak to anybody, had no mailing list, didn't even have a website. The only website for this thing was a page on cdbaby.com, right? Sure. And one of our biggest sellers of all time. A- amazing. Just a good case of the, the music selling itself. Not that that should be really a role model to anybody, right, but right. <laughs> it shows the power of of focusing on your music to make something truly remarkable. Right. Uh, can just carry everything else. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying there, and I, isn't that isn't that um, one of Seth Godin's um, big um, mantras of one of his books? You know, be remarkable, and and that's probably the the best thing you can yeah. do um, to further your business. I definitely um, hear you on that, and I think that that's good advice. The the problem is that you know, with the millions of musicians out there, is like we all have different levels of natural viral potential, or, or or that you know, not there are plenty of great musicians who deserve a career um, and have quality stuff that can find an audience, but maybe they don't have that viral spark or that thing that sets them immediately apart from others. And I I, I think the emphasis you're putting on it is certainly important. But what I try to focus on is empowering everybody else, you know, and uh, all the people that need to, because there's two ways to succeed, in my opinion. One is raw talent, and one is clawing your way to the top and fighting tooth and nail right. to get where you want to be. And in my life, that's that's been the path. Like, I, I never had instant success with anything. I worked my butt off um, even as a singer. I was not very good when I started, and that's not me being yeah. modest. Like, and I heard you say something similar in, in your book. I was not this naturally yeah. gifted singer, and I just wanted it so bad that I kept doing it, and I got there. And my record deal, I got rejected by everybody in the business and, and had it in mind that the only way I was ever going to get signed was to get on the radio called every and prove to the record labels that people wanted my stuff, called every single person I knew in the industry, asked if they knew anyone on radio, finally got it spun. That spin didn't lead to the record deal but two months later magically enough as the universe seems to work this way a capital records guy leaked it the the, the track same track to a, a radio programmer at k-rock he liked it and it started spreading throughout the country without a record label on board and every experience yeah. of my life has been has been having to fight for it and i think that there are strategies that we can we can use to better our, our chances and, and give people that might be ignored by traditional distributors and labels and radio stations and even viral activity to, to give them the tools to sort of 
um, still find an audience because that's you know that's what we all want. Uh, whether it's a thousand strong or a, or a million strong, I think I think anyone who's willing to do the work can find an audience. I mean, did you see anything? Um, do you have any tips or strategies along those lines that really give people some strategic steps? Or did you again, just in terms of overall um, approaches to marketing music, did you see anything um, that tended to to work better or suggest to you that you know, hey, I think this guy's doing it right, and or, or gal, and and stands a, a good chance of of succeeding? Yeah, the words and music. No, sorry, words and photo. Um, if your music was just being played on the radio right now, then your music would get the chance to speak for itself, right? Like people would be all millions of people tuning into the radio stations would be listening to it and deciding whether they like it. And say if you were playing at a popular bar in town where everybody goes anyway on a Saturday night and you're playing to a room of 200 people that have never heard you before then maybe your music gets to speak for itself. But in every other scenario, your music doesn't get the chance to speak for itself. You have to call people's attention to it using words and images, right? Oh, like sure. You have to get people to want to like click, to go make the effort to hear your music. And all you've got to work with, basically, are words and images. So... Never underestimate the power of having an interesting description of your music. And it uh, got this great story. So telling. Um, guy in a, I was speaking at a conference in Nashville. And a musician stood up and, and told me the story that he his band had been trying to play in the festival circuit. He felt that they were like a very like summertime party band, good for big festivals. It's very like big stage show, big fun crowd show. So so he'd been trying to crack into the festival market for the longest time and just having no luck at it, right? So they're playing little bars. And he said, you know, for years we've been playing these little bars. And one night we're playing yet another little bar. And some drunk guy in the audience staggers up to the stage and he says, you know what you guys are? You're hillbilly flamenco. <laughs> <laughs> they just thought that that was so funny, right? And so the band is like on the, the drive home. They're like laughing about that. They're like, wasn't that awesome? That dude called us hillbilly flamenco. That's that's hilarious, man. And um, so uh, he said, you know, it's funny, though, is we got together the next week at rehearsal and we're still laughing at the phrase hillbilly flamenco. And we're like, hey, you know, we're quoting this guy after a week of him saying that. Let's try it. Let's start calling ourselves Hillbilly Flamenco and see what happens. And he said, the next time we played a little uh, bar, we told the audience a few times during the show. We said, you know what kind of music that you're listening to tonight, people? This is Hillbilly Flamenco. <laughs> and we are, you know, whatever the band name was. And he said, and we'd repeat it a few times during the show. And we would say, okay, so on Monday, when you, what are you going to tell them? And the audience would say, Hillbilly Flamenco. And he'd say, that's right. And he's like, Derek, our career took a turn. Once we started using this phrase, hillbilly flamenco, to describe our music, it started traveling. Like, we gave, we made it easy for people to talk about our music now. Instead of leaving these big generic terms, oh, it sounds like Tori Amos meets The Clash. You know, and now it's like, 
we give them two funny words that they can remember to tell people about your music. And it said, not only that, so attendance started increasing at our shows after we started calling ourselves Hillbilly Flamenco. We'd been playing the same bars for years, but I swear, once we started telling people to call us Hillbilly Flamenco, uh, attendance started increasing at our shows. And then I called one of those bookers for the big festivals, one of those guys I'd been trying to reach for years, and got him on the phone, and he said, what kind of music is it? And he said, Derek, this is like the seventh time I've talked to this guy in three years. He never remembers us. And he said, okay, what kind of music are you guys? And I told him, Hillbilly Flamenco. And he said there was a little silence, and then he burst out laughing, and he said, all right, I'm going to give you my real mailing address this time. (laughs) I got to hear this package. You sent it to my home address. I want to hear this thing. And he said, sure enough, we got, uh, starting from that moment, we got booked into the festival circuit, and we've been playing it ever since, all because we changed the words we used to describe our music. I thought that was such a great telling story, right? Like, any of us doing any kind of music right now, like, you could find the words to describe your music that people just love that, and it it makes it easier for it to travel. It's actually being considerate in a way. You're now making it easier for your fans to tell their friends about you if you tell them how to describe you. Yeah, I think I think that's great advice and goes back to that concept of the unique selling proposition. I, I think if you, you know, what kind of music you make, singer, songwriter, you know, the, the people know what that is, <laughs> but how right. exciting is that? Not not very, right. and it's gonna, and it doesn't mean it can't work for you, but you're gonna be, you know, it's gonna be a fight to sort of get yourself to stand out, yeah. get yourself to stand out. But yeah, like something like Hillbilly Flamingo, like the more you can give a person within just it it goes even in business they talk about it with the elevator pitch you need to be able to walk away with a unique impression of what something is that you can say in just a sentence or two and and music i think you have even less um (laughs) less words that you should be i can't seem to speak here i'm speaking of words but uh, you you should be able to do it in (laughs) even less words there we go um so yeah right. that's that's great advice um, well, and, and, and i think would help and lastly sorry don't forget yeah, yeah. the sorry no no go on uh, i just want to add to that before we change the subject like also don't forget the importance of a great image that i think there were also a lot of top sellers on cd baby that were top sellers because their photo or their whether it was their album photo or just their artist photo was so striking that anybody browsing the site just had to click on that striking image. So don't forget, like sometimes the power of finding a great image to be, whether it's your photo or your album photo or whatever your logo may be, um, a great image can work wonders. Yep, the last indie artist I I bought without any prior knowledge, you know, wasn't a friend, didn't go to a show, hadn't hadn't um, been on a mailing list or anything like that. But the last independent artist that I bought just uh, as an impulse purchase was 100% because of the image. It was it was some time ago, but it was an image I saw on the web uh, in an ad, clicked on it, took me to CD Baby, as a matter of fact, and, and I bought, bought the album. Um, so definitely the image can go along. I can still literally see it. It's ingrained in my head, and it was just a person's face, but it was interesting, and it caught my attention, a lot of contrast in the colors. Whatever it was just pulled me over and made me click, made me listen. I liked it. I bought it. So for sure. Awesome. Um, so we only have a little bit of time left here, and I do want to get to some of these really crazy um, stories in the book, but 
to sort of wrap up the advice for musicians, you know, let's say you had a nephew or niece, you know, or other young adult that you were close to, like a family member or close close friend, some somebody you really cared about. They come to you and they say, you know, I want to make it as a musician. I want to be not not just working, but I want to really make it, have a huge following, be a rock star, you know. But I have no idea what to do. Uh, what would you suggest for that person in this climate? Um. Honestly, I know this is like un-PC to mention this, but I think moving to a big city makes a massive difference. I mean, here I am like traveling the world and you and I are both speaking from New Zealand. (laughs) But I think of how many opportunities came to me because I was in New York City or because I was in L.A. Like I lived in New York City for 10 years. I lived in L.A. for six years. And think of how many successful and famous people are my friends just because they lived a mile down the road from me. You know, that it is possible to live in uh, Manitoba or Alaska or Belgium or whatever and get famous and successful, but it's even more of an uphill battle than if you live in those centers where everything's going on. Things happen faster. Also, just sometimes opportunities are given to you just because you go surfing with the guy who's choosing the music for the Fox TV network, you know? Um, so many things happen that way. That, that Again, people aren't objective and perfect. They they often give opportunities to people they're friends with. So, yeah, number one. And also there's just like a different... Uh, you're surrounded by so much ambition and so many other people with such like a success-driven mindset when you're in these big cities, uh, as long as you're associating with the right types. (laughs) And uh, it really helps to be in a big music center. So yeah, if if I had a, uh, whatever you said, a a nephew or niece that really wanted to be famous uh, and successful, I'd say do it. Just go rent, you know, one room in a four bedroom apartment, whatever it takes to like keep your costs low, but be in the big city. And then, then just go hustle, man. Like just, Meet everyone you can, um, be a cool person, Stay, keep in touch with everybody. So much of it are these kind of soft techniques of um, being in the right place at the right time, being the cool person that people like having around and people are happy to do favors for. Because let's, let's face it, a lot of success comes from other people lifting you up, if you know what I mean. Sure. If you think about that metaphor of like, you know, somebody's down in a uh, in a well and you reach your hand down and you pull them up, right? A lot of getting successful is people pulling you up, whether it's, you know, the obvious one of people who like buying your music and attending your show, but the more invisible ones of like somebody who likes you and chooses to make your song the closing song in this big Hollywood movie that's coming up. They often do that not for the most objective reasons. They often do it because they like you. You're the kind of person they want to help. They feel good about helping. Now, so, um, yeah, despite all the other stuff that you teach people, um, which I think is really important, I'd say my little bit of advice then would be to move to the big city and right. learn to be a cool person and be everywhere. And Opportunities happen. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was born and raised in a tiny little town in Hawaii, and the first thing I did within a couple of weeks of graduating high school was take off and, at the, and move to Seattle at the time, and had I stayed in Hawaii, I can 
I can just about assure you it wouldn't have happened um, for no other yeah. reason. I mean, sure, there's industry there, and that's part of it. But you know, industry I think is becoming less and less important, at least to most. You know, certainly if you're going to become yeah. that international sensation, then then it is important. But I think I, I think the synergy alone, like you're sort of talking about, and uh, of just having other creative minds and and people that can, like you say, you know, uh, pull you up a, a bit. I think that that is really important. Um, so you know, one of the things that I think is really refreshing and cool uh, about you is um, you really have this, um, and it's not. Yes, you have this really sincere and altruistic kind of thing about you, and and you know I didn't, you know I, I sensed it from little things I heard and from our conversation meeting, but after reading your book, I um, was really kind of blown away by a few things that you've done in your life and with your businesses and the attitudes that you've had. And, you know, you talked about going into it, not wanting a business and just wanting to sort of continue being a musician and being creative. And it just kind of happened by accident. And I can tell you, and I can tell the folks listening, that you really sort of walk the walk on that. And if anyone, you know, I know we're talking to musicians and your book is, while it certainly would be relatable to musicians, it's a little more of an entrepreneur's book. The book I'm talking about, because I know you've got different projects and different book projects, in fact, in fact, out there, but is uh, Anything You Want. I have the title correct, don't I? It's Anything You Want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and it's, I, it's on Amazon and everywhere else. That's yeah. like a regular published book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I listen to it as an audio book because I have two children and I haven't read a book in four years. If it's not on audio, I'm pretty screwed. Um, because I, yeah, I just haven't found time to put eyeballs on paper in a very long while. But, um, but it was great. And one of the things that is so impressive about your experience is that you um, built uh, – uh, this business up and it was eventually sold for $22 million, but you effectively gave that away. I mean, do you want to talk about that? You effectively gave it to a trust for mu- music education. Yeah. Um, I think the common thread here is that you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. I, we didn't mention this actually. Um, you know how I told you how I quit my last day job in 1992? Right. But that day job was actually working at Warner Chapel Music Publishing, like working inside Warner Music in New York City. So I was deep inside the industry for two years, and I got to meet a lot of miserable rock stars. And I think there, there are a lot of people, even like, you know, household names, famous people that maybe wanted to be a rock star when they were 17, they pursued that path as hard as they could and got some major break in their career when they were 23. And now they're 29 or worse, you know, 39 and they don't really want it anymore, but it's like, they're still following the plan that they laid out for themselves when they were 17. They're still acting like a rock star, but they're miserable. It's really not what they want anymore, but they haven't had the the guts to question their choices and, make a real change, right? So meeting miserable rock stars when I was 21 really helped me see the importance of of constantly asking yourself, what the hell am I doing and why? <laughs> and and acting accordingly, you know? Um, so with CD Baby, um, I left this out of my story at the beginning when you asked me to give my background, but 
yeah, here I started this company. It got huge. It was making millions of dollars a year. I had 85 employees and I was thrilled and loving it for the first, say, eight and a half years, right? And somewhere around the ninth year of doing it, I was like, eh, I'm not so into this anymore. And by 10 years, I was just over it. And that was a really hard thing to admit, right? Like I thought this kind of like a, a career in music. I thought this was like something I was going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I had to admit to myself, like, I'm just not happy doing this. Like, I, I'm not into this. Like, yes, it is what I wanted 10 years ago. And I loved it for the last eight and a half years. But man, I'm so not into it anymore. And so, yeah, that was the decision to sell the company, which in itself, I just thought was crazy. I thought I was just going to do CD Baby for the rest of my life. How could I sell my baby, right? right. It's like breaking up the band or it's, you know, whatever. It's like the lead singer leaving the band. It's just, I, I didn't think I would ever do it. But yeah, I sold the company and, um, and in negotiations, it, um, it turns out the selling price was going to be $22 million. And there's about eight months of negotiation and paperwork to be done with selling a big company like that or doing that size of a deal, right? So I had eight months to kind of be philosophical and think, oh, my God, I'm about to get $22 million. What the hell am I going to do with $22 million? And I had a lot of time to to think about this and, again, to, like, really be honest and not just act like someone else or do what I think someone else would want to do, but be honest about what I really wanted. And I thought about it and I was like, I'm never going to spend $22 million. I'd, I'll, I'd have to be an idiot. I'd have to be one of those, like a character in the Wolf of Wall Street to to find a way to go spend $22 million like an idiot. Like, I don't want to be that idiot. I'm going to buy a Ferrari. Give me a break. You couldn't pay me to drive a Ferrari. Like, I don't want that life. That's that's not what I really want. So I told my tax lawyer that worked with me with CD Baby, I told him that I was probably just going to give it all away anyway, or at least most of it. Like, yeah, I'll keep a few million. But you got to understand also, by the time I sold CD Baby, I was already making a few million dollars a year net profit. So I was doing fine. I had already paid off all my debts. I I bought the condo I was living in in LA. I I gave my parents money to pay off their debts. Like, you know, all that stuff had already been done. It's not like I was needing any money anymore. So then yeah, I just decided, well, or actually my tax lawyer said, you know, if you're going to give it all away anyway, he said it's actually smarter to give it away first. Instead of you receiving $22 million as a U.S. taxpayer, then you'll have to pay $7 million in taxes, and then you'll only have $15 million left to give away, right? And if you're, but if you're going to give it away anyway, you can create a charitable trust now, give the whole company it away before you sell it. And so then the purchasing company will be buying it not from you personally, but they'll be buying it from the charitable trust. He said that way all $22 million goes into charity. And I said, yes, that's what I want. (laughs) That's awesome. Because then, you know what, that 22 million, it never even touches my hands. Like I don't, I don't want it. I don't need it. It's a nice reminder that I don't need it, you know? Um, So yeah, that's what I did. I just put the company into a charitable trust and then sold it from there so that the 22 million never touched my hands. It all goes off to 
music charity uh, when I die. But while I'm alive, it's set up in a way that like I get a little kind of stipend while I'm alive. So it pays my living expenses while I'm alive. And when I die, hopefully, you know, compounding interest, it's worth a lot more than 22 million by the time I die. And then it'll all go to music education charities to I think it's kind of like the full circle of life, right? Like that music came from musicians and music fans. And when I die, it'll go back to help create a new generation of musicians. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I was really blown away. Um, I probably am the idiot that could spend $22 million. But <laughs> um, um, Well, again, and, and sorry to interrupt, and I know that you're just like being funny, but there's, and if that's true, then that's awesome. Like it's, we all have to just be honest for who we really are. Like one of my role models is Richard Branson. I really admire Richard Branson. I've read all of his books. I, I follow what he's doing and I admire him for being him, but that's not me, right? Like sure. he apparently, when he's worth a billion dollars, it's still not enough. He's pushing to, to earn more and make more. Right. So that's his set point. He wants to be a multi-billionaire and for whatever your tastes are, it's all just about being, for one, knowing yourself well enough to know this, which often doesn't happen except through trial and error. <laughs> but then it's about being honest about what you really like. And if you want the lavish lifestyle, then that's on, that's awesome. Like, ignore those that are tell you that will tell you you're wrong for wanting that. No matter what you want, somebody's going to tell you you're wrong, right? So like, people tell me I'm wrong for giving the twenty-two million away. People would tell. Uh, Richard Branson, he's wrong for spending too much money on other things. Or um, Will Smith is a hilarious example. I, I just recently read some like profile of where he lives in Bel Air, and it's like, my God, he's got like multiple like basketball courts and swimming pools, and like cinemas inside his house that spin around and the like, crazy stuff like that. It's like, hey man, if that's what he wants, awesome. You know, don't let anybody tell you you're wrong for wanting what you want. Right. Right. No, I hear you there. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I just, I just found it really impressive. And um, again, you know, kind of, uh, I guess I just really meant to say when setting up the book that that people should read it. And I wanted to point out that you really are th this guy that kind of walks the walk. Because even in in trying to do this, I mean, as far as I could tell, you basically did it as a favor to me. I mean, you, I kept asking you, should we promote, you know, one of your things? And nah, you know, Der Derek really was not like working to promote anything. This is me wanting you guys to read it because it was an enjoyable read. So um, again, he's probably cringing as I set up and give a proper pitch on it. But if you do uh, like what Derek's about and want to check it out, or if you haven't already, um, anything you want, I think if if you have any kind of an entrepreneur streak in you, even as a musician, even as a musician who would like to succeed and sees what you're ultimately doing as a business, I think it's a, it's a really entertaining read. Um, maybe we could leave everyone with one sort of fun anecdote, probably my favorite uh, from it, uh, and then we can kind of sign off. But um, the pizza story, the the uh, the uh. you do people a, a favor. For a pizza, uh, tell, tell folks about that because I think interjecting that kind of fun into your business, even as a musician, is really important. Um, uh, because you touched on it earlier, just the static kind of boring stuff that we tend to put out and mix into our marketing, I don't think serves a lot of us. Yeah. But when we can make it fun and colorful and interesting, and there are quite a few stories of neat things you 
you've done, whether it's the follow-up letter that customers at CD Baby get or the rubber squid uh, that you sent someone. We'll just leave people uh, needing to buy the book to find out what the heck I'm talking about there. But, <laughs> but tell folks about the pizza story just for fun, and then we'll, we'll call, it a, call it a day. Well, I think it's more like I hate how formal most people treat business. I don't know what stick goes up their butt when they, as soon as they call something business, they think they need to, you know, be in a suit and a briefcase and be formal and proper and polite. And it's just like, get off it. That it, just, that's not needed. And in fact, people, your customers don't like that either. Your customers would rather have some fun and smile when doing business with you instead of, you know, whatever, looking at your proper terms and conditions and privacy policies and rules. And it's just like, so all of that stuff, I just, bleh, it just grosses me out. That's not who I want to be. So um, the pizza story you're talking about is that every now and then somebody would send their album into CD Baby and have me set it up in the store. And it takes like 40 minutes of work to set the album in the store. I would scan their album art. I would digitize their clips. I would crop them to the right length. I would fix the spelling mistakes in their bio and format it nicely and then put it up on the web. And, you know, it was a very hands-on process. So every now and then somebody would say, hey, um, I want to make a change. Like I want to do different audio clips or I'm going to send you a new album art. Could you use this instead? And I was just like, all right, you know what? That's going to take a half an hour to do. So why don't you just send me a pizza and then I'll feel better about doing it. And because I thought, you know, that's that's honest. I wouldn't mind doing it if a pizza showed up at the door. It's like, all right, fair enough. You know, the guy sent me a pizza. I'll, I'll make the change request he needs. So, yeah, the first time I said that to somebody on the phone who was requesting a change, they thought I was kidding. I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, here's the phone number of the local pizzeria here in Woodstock, New York. Um, they know where I live. They know my favorite pizza. Just call them up and say that you want to get Derek Sivers a pizza. They'll They'll know what to do. And uh, he said, all right. So, yeah, sure enough, um, pizza showed up at my door an hour later, and the guy sent an email telling me what he wanted changed. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll sit here and have a pizza and make the changes you want. Now we're now we're fair. That's even, right? Even Steven, is that the phrase? Uh, anyway, um, yeah, and that became the official policy for, for years to come. Um, and actually, you know what's funny? When we moved to Portland, Oregon, there was no local pizza shop that could, like, take a credit card over the phone. <laughs> They always had to like show up in person to get an imprint. So then we changed it. Um, the policy was changes need chocolate. So we said, just send us some chocolate and we'll make whatever change you want. <laughs> and yeah, uh, those kinds of things, honestly, man, talk about what we were saying an hour ago in the conversation about like making your music shockingly remarkable so that friends tell friends about it. Yeah. Sometimes these little tiny policies that I was doing just in the name of kind of being honest, like this is the kind of business I want to run. Sometimes those things were so shocking that like, yeah, the guy who I say, send me a pizza and I'll make you the change. That dude went and told all of his musician friends in, in Miami that, oh my God, you guys have to go with this company, CD Baby. They're awesome. Like <laughs> they told me to send a pizza, you know, so yeah. the word of mouth gets, you know, those kind of things being remarkable just creates this amazing word of mouth. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And there's a, quite a few fun stories like that. So again, if anyone wants to check out Derek's book, it's uh, anything you want and you can find it on Amazon and all those places. Um, uh, I, I've kept you longer than either of us anticipated. And um, 
you know, I can see my my phone is ringing off the hook here, so we should probably call it uh, call it a wrap. But I really sincerely want to thank you for for doing this. Um, like I say, uh, I mean, you're really the guy who, in a lot of senses, ushered in this new era of independent music. I mean, you made it possible. You were the first person to really do that on, on that scale, and, and maybe period. Um, uh, you, to make it possible for independent music, musicians to bypass the traditional distributors that really um, controlled the music industry and gave independent <laughs> musicians a voice. And, and everything has changed in, in the wake of that. And so, so you know what? Sorry, get, are, are we allowed to swear in this yeah, of show? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You know, near my ending years at CD Baby, I got an email from a traditional distributor mm-hmm. that literally said, you know what? Fuck you, man. I said, what? And I, I think he, that's like all he said. He said something like, fuck you and fuck yourself. And I replied back saying, <laughs> why? And he said, you know what? And fuck you because you went and fucking made it so hard for me. He said, you know, it used to be the norm to pay musicians once a year. That was fine with everybody. Then you come along and you start paying them every week. Now every musician comes to me and is like, why can't you pay me every week? And I say, it doesn't work that way. And they say, well, CD Baby pays me every week. Why can't you? And he said, now everybody, like, what am I supposed to do as a traditional distributor now? You Now you went and, like, wrecked it for everybody, man. You went and wrecked this whole industry. Fuck you. <laughs> I was like, right on. That was such a great compliment. And was he being funny at all or was he just purely hostile? No. Wow. He was, he was furious. He was angry. He was going out of business because my business model was putting his business model out of business. It was very flattering. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, again, you touch on this in your book and we, we got to jump, but, um, it really was impossible just 10 years ago. Uh, is it 10 years now? Has yeah. it been, you know, uh, or maybe, a, maybe it goes back a little further than that. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. for anyone who couldn't make that tiny, small top 1% of the industry. And there is so much valid art in the remaining 99%, uh, of the industry. And and now that's all different. And, um, you and your ideas and CD baby and all the companies like you guys to follow have really changed that. And it's a whole new world where, um, with, I like to think a few marketing tips like I have to offer, um, (laughs) you know, anyone Mm -hmm. can, can find an audience. And, and I think, I think that makes the world a better place you know that's all we want is to control the circumstances of our own lives and as artists that means um getting people to consume our music whether or not an agent a publisher a label uh a manager want to ever see the beauty that we see in what we're doing and so so you you help make that possible for a lot of people so again thanks for sharing your perspective and your insight um with everyone listening, uh, I, I do encourage everyone to check out uh, everything Derek's doing. Your, your main website is what sivers.org. Yeah, in fact, anybody that, especially if you made it this far into the podcast, um, go to my website on sivers.org, and I put my email address in big letters at the bottom. And seriously, feel free to use it. Feel free to email and ask me anything, or just email to say hi. I'm happy to, you know, I reply to every email. So. Say hi. Sweet. Well, thanks very much, um, and and um, you you take care, and, and we'll chat again soon. Thanks for talking to everyone in in the old Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. <laughs> thanks, John. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast with John Ojaka. If you'd like to learn more music marketing strategies, then go to musicmarketingmanifesto.com. That's musicmarketingmanifesto.com. And sign up for your free copy of the Music Marketing Blueprint.